you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Like a chrysalis, we're emerging from the economy of the Industrial Revolution. An economy confined to and limited by the Earth's physical resources into the economy in mind, in which there are no bounds on human imagination, and the freedom to create is the most precious natural resource. Welcome to the Soul of Enterprise, Business and the Knowledge Economy, sponsored by Sage, supporting small and medium-sized businesses by creating greater freedom for them to succeed. I'm Ron Baker, along with my good friend, Vera Sage Institute colleague and co-host, Ed Kless. And Ed, we are so honored today. We have Joseph Pine, accomplished speaker, author, consultant, uh, world-famous uh, he's written one of my all-time favorite business books, which we highly recommend, folks, The Experience Economy, Work is Theater and Every Business a Stage. He's worked with an advisor with many Fortune 500 companies, and he's uh, got a resume that just goes on and on. So, Joe, I'll just welcome you to the show and say thank you so much for, for coming on. This is quite an honor for us. Oh, well, thank you, Ron. It's a, it's a pleasure to be here. And, Ed, nice to, nice to be with you again. Virtually. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, so Joe, why don't you give us your background? How did you end up where you are? <laughs> well, it all started in a little log cabin. <laughs> uh, probably don't need to go back that far, but uh, I actually have a, a technology background. Uh, you know, I actually programmed computers when I was in you know junior high school, and we actually had a teletype in our home. If you remember what those are, because my dad worked on the ARPANET when we lived in Palo Alto. So I actually got an applied math degree, worked for IBM for 13 years, and started in very technical jobs, worked up into management and strategy in the IBM Consulting Group. And they actually sent me to MIT for a year to get a master's degree. And, and I found out I had to write a thesis, so I said, well, I'm going to write a thesis I can turn into a book. And that's what I did with my first book, Mass Customization, you know, about how do, you, how do you efficiently serve customers uniquely. And um, so I spent the entire time working on that. I, I outlined a book, and I... I um, you know, figured out what could I get done while I was still at MIT in terms of the thesis, and then got a contract with Harvard Business School Press and published that in uh, late 1992. And uh, 93, I actually left IBM, started my own company, took on some partners, uh, Jim Gilmore and Doug Parker in the Cleveland area, and we've been now running a, a partnership for 20 years. And uh, it's shortly after I left IBM that I discovered the experience economy, which resulted in the book that you love so much, Ron. Uh, they came out in 1999, and, and the rest, as they say, is history. And your dad, I was just reading an infinite possibility that your dad, Bud Pine, was an electrical engineer who actually worked on the ARPANET? Yeah, yeah. He actually he got into the programming business in the 1950s. And uh, uh, he, uh, he was, an, I think, one of the world's top ten programmers uh, you know, in his time. And, yeah, worked on the ARPANET, worked for SRI, a number of different companies, worked for IBM, actually. 
uh, before then, and, and RCA, GE, when it was in the computer business before it sold it to Honeywell, and, and so forth. So yeah, so I come, you know, I come from that uh, background, uh, honestly, in terms of understanding technology and, and what's going on there. Right. Well, you know, I've been marinating in your work for the last few weeks since we knew we were going to do this show, and I, 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 I finished Infinite Possibility, and also your other relatively recent book, The Laws of Managing, and uh, we're hoping to touch maybe on all three, but Oops. really want to dive into the experience economy. Did, because you, did, you, did you read Authenticity as well, too? Just want to curious if you hit them all. <laughs> I, I, I did not read oh, that okay. yet, but it's, on, it's in my Kindle, so all right, super. <laughs> I will get to it. But I did read the experience economy back in 1999. It was in May of 1999, oh, and me and my like colleague, <laughs> Dan Morris, uh, actually taught a course, and, and I have to tell you this funny story, Joe, because um, every time I think of you and your book and even your whole you know, framework in that book, I think of the radar ball. Mm-hmm. The, the Rawlings radar ball, and we used that as the prop. We got in big trouble with the hotel for for throwing a radar ball. Around. Right, I mean, yeah, that was a great thing. We used it as an example of what we call inging the thing. You know that that uh, you know manufacturers can turn any physical good you know into an experience by focusing on the you know the ing words. Uh, yeah. And and the radar ball, and I don't I don't know if they still make it or not, but basically, it was sort of the first use of like an accelerometer inside of the ball that could tell you when you threw it, would give a readout about how fast you threw it. Right. And, and it was sort of a cool little thing because you could sort of like, you know, test out your arm and see how you compared and, and see if you're getting better and so forth. Oh, sure. I'm, I'm positive, positive every Little League team in the country probably had one. Yeah. Um, yeah, the only but problem no, was you couldn't hit it. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. <laughs> but, but, you know, I've written a few books, and I kind of know how long – ideas take to germinate. And I just wanted to ask you this framework of the experience economy, especially the progression of economic value that you lay out in that book. Was that like a sudden insight? Did it evolve over time? How did you get there? (laughs) Uh, Yes, is the answer. But uh, uh, what happened was, after I left IBM, I was back actually in the IBM Advanced Business Institute in Palisades, New York, and teaching a bunch of IBM consultants on mass customization. And I said something that I often did, which is that if you mass customize a good, you automatically turn it into a service. If you look at the classic economic distinction, you know, goods are standardized, services are customized, just for, done for a particular person. Goods are inventoried after production, but services are delivered on demand when the customer says this is what they want. And uh, goods are tangible and services intangible, but part and parcel of mass customization is the intangible service of helping customers figure out what it is that they want. You know, so if you're a uh, Dell computer or a Lutron Electronics and lighting controls or, you know, lens crafter and eyewear or whatever, if you are mass customizing your goods and you're really in the service business of helping customers, you know, figure out what they want, design and define that, and then you make and deliver it to that individual. You know, so I said all that in this class, and this one guy in the back of the room, an IBM consulting, sort of a smart aleck, uh, but he raised his hand. He said, you know, you talk about um, uh, service companies that mass customize. What does it turn a service into? And I said that mass customization automatically turns a service into an experience. And I went, whoa, that sounds good. <laughs> <laughs> I, got, I said, hold on a second. got to write that down. <laughs> I mean, that's exactly how it happened. It just came out of my mouth. And so I wrote it down, though, and I remembered it, and I started thinking about it and, and going over it, and I realized that if that were true, then experiences were, in fact, a distinct economic offering, as distinct from services as services are from goods. 
and there, that there would be an economy based off on experiences, as there is today, you know, supplying the service economy, which has supplanted the industrial economy, which even going further back supplanted the agrarian economy based off commodities. And, and so in figuring all that out, um, uh, really was able to come together, and then you saw experiences everywhere. You, know, you saw how many people were using it to market what they're doing. You saw you know, the rise of theme restaurants, the rise of boutique hotels, the rise of experiential retail, and so on and so forth. And it really was true that you know, we were shifting into an experience economy. Right. That's, that's excellent. I mean, it really is a, a, a really valid point. And then how did you get from there to the transformations, the the, the fifth level? Right. Well, we, we, you know, we're always asking ourselves, what's next, right? What's next? And because we realized that, you know, in the experience economy, one of the reasons for its rise is the commoditization of goods and services, that companies have to seek out differentiation, so they have to go beyond goods and services to staging experiences. And we saw, my partner Jim Gilmore and I saw that we could uh, stage, or, or that experiences could be commoditized as well. Uh, you know, the second time you have an experience doesn't tend to be as good as first. The third time, not as good as that. And any time you get customers saying, been there, done that, right? That's the hallmark of a commoditized experience. Right. But using that same heuristic, what happens when you customize an experience? And we realize, well, if you customize an experience, then what you're going to do is you're going to turn to what we often call a life-transforming experience, an experience that changes us in some way. And that we ended up calling a transformation. So a transformation is the fifth and final economic offering. In this progression of economic value, we're using experiences as a raw material to guide customers to change. Right. And, and, and we do want to spend some time on that because Ed and I work a lot, obviously, with professional firms, so lawyers and accountants and ad agencies. And I, when I read your book back in 99, I thought, wow, CPAs and all these professionals are kind of poised at the top of their, their, their chain. They can actually perform transformations. You can help somebody leave their legacy. You can help them retire sooner, get their yep. kid into college. You know, like you say uh, somewhere that, you know, the uh, transformations are, are for industries that, you know, help you become healthy, wealthy, or wise. Right. And, and, and so we'll probably talk more about those transformations because I really want to get your opinion on, on how, where you see that evolving. Um, the other point that you make in the experience economy that I found absolutely fascinating, and it's kind of like one of those things, once you, once you see it or once you own that type of car, you see it everywhere. But before that, it was, right. you know, you were oblivious <laughs> to it. You said the history of all economic progress consists of charging a fee for what was once free. And you give the example of the birthday cake. Can you explain the birthday cake? Yeah, well, yeah, exactly. The, you know, the, when, when I was growing up, you know, the, the, my mom would throw a birthday uh, party, and the core of that birthday party was the birthday cake. You know, the candles lit on it, you blow it out, and everybody sings happy birthday to you and that. And if you think about that, uh, when my mom made that birthday cake for me, she made it from scratch. Right, which means she got out the flour and the eggs and the sugar and the actually I have no idea what goes into a birthday cake, you know, but she got out all that stuff. It was she worked from the commodities. And it cost maybe twenty, thirty cents worth of stuff to be able to make that cake. But along came manufacturers like uh, Duncan Hines, Betty Crocker, and they took that same stuff and they packaged it together, mixed it up, put it on a grocery store shelf. And now you can bake the cake still, but from uh, you know, cake mix and canned frosting, which might cost you two or three dollars a piece. You know, an order of more, uh, an order of magnitude, more value for the goods than for the commodities. Well, as moms everywhere got more and more time starved, and they went back to work, they didn't always have time to bake the cake. So, what do they do? They they call up the corner bakery or the grocery store, 
and ask them to perform the service of actually baking the cake for the party. And that might cost 10 or 20 or $30, another order of magnitude more value. And, and then finally, you get to the point where you're so time-starved that as a parent, you, you not only don't you have time to bake the cake, you don't have time to throw the party. So you outsource it. You, know, you go to a place like Chuck E. Cheese's or some other place and ask them to stage the birthday party experience for your kids. And now you could be talking hundreds of dollars for a birthday and, party experience, at the core of which is a birthday cake with only 20 or 30 cents worth of stuff in it. Right, that they give you for free. Right, exactly. <laughs> throw it in because you're spending so much money on the experience. So you know, we used to be responsible for that experience, and now increasingly we pay others. Just like we pay, now pay others to bake the cake for us, we pay others to, to throw the experience for us, and that's true in industry after industry. You know, we, we pay fitness centers to make us fit, which really gets more into a transformational experience than that, um, whereas work used to make us fit. We didn't have to pay anybody to do that. Right. You know, another favorite example of mine, and this is literally up the street from my house. I'm kind of in Northern California in the wine country, and there was a, a place that had a farm, and you could, you know, they have pumpkin patch and all that. But And during Halloween, when you went out there, you could pay like ec- extra 20, 30 bucks, get your pumpkin, but you could also churn butter, milk the cows. Right. You know, feed. And, and my dad's up there looking at this going, I did this as a kid, and I hated it. <laughs> You know, I, I grew up on a farm, and all these chores were drudgery, and now kids are paying for this. So it That's is. Right. Just, it's just such a great point that that we we do we we now we have all these different experiences, and one of my favorite examples uh, from from your book too is you you know you said Disney in the malls, the Disney retail stores should charge admission, and it would be a better experience. Exactly, you know the the. Disney, you know, I think they're afraid of cannibalizing the parks of that. But when they went into retail, they actually had a theme of the place. It was Mickey's Toy Factory. You know, you could see that in there and some of that. But they, but all it was was merchandising. There's no real experience there. It's sort of a crying shame that it took a manufacturer like American Girl to create the first retail store with a theater inside of it, uh, where right. you pay admission. And and an American Girl, you can pay admission for the theater. You pay admission for a uh, photo shoot, a hair salon for the cafe that they have. You, know, you can go to an American Girl place and spend over $100 without buying a thing. Right. That's for the admission feed uh, experiences. Excellent. Well, Joe, this is great. We need to take our first break, but uh, we'll come back and we'll get Ed involved here. He'll take over the next segment. But, folks, in the meantime, I'd like to remind you that you can ask a question for Joe at Ask. T-S-O-E, hashtag AskTSOE on Twitter, and you can also email Ed and myself at TSOE at Verisage.com. And now we want to hear from our sponsors, first uh, a commercial for our Ed and I's new book, and then we want to hear from Leading Results. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. Have you ever read a book that changed your life? I sure have. But have you ever read a book where the forward changed your life? Me neither. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. I wrote the foreword to Ron Baker and Ed Kless's new ebook, The Soul of Enterprise, Dialogues on Business and the Knowledge Economy. The value of this book is found entirely in its foreword. So when you buy it, think of it as buying the foreword and getting the rest of the book for free. Available now for download exclusively on Amazon.com. 
Is your website just a brochure, or is it your best salesperson? If your site is not the best lead generation tool you have, we should talk. We are Leading Results. We build websites and marketing programs that impact your bottom line. Using HubSpot or WordPress, we'll create a website and supporting marketing program that gets your business found, converts web visitors to leads, and provides clear tracking on what is and is not working. Learn about our team and approach to your success. Visit leadingresults.com slash TSOE to find out more. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Kless. To find out more about our show, visit verisage.com. You may also tweet us at Verisage. That's V-E-R-A-S-A-G-E. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. Ed Kless here on The Soul of Enterprise, and we are honored to have Joseph Pine on with us today. And I wanted to to just continue the conversation about the experience economy and maybe just throw out a couple of examples that that I have come across. Um, And one is sort of a negative example, Joe, and that is Mm -hmm. the the Australian and New Zealand white wines who don't put a cork (laughs) in their (laughs) bottle. And I honestly think that part of their sales problem breaking into the U.S. market is I understand not putting an actual you know cork made out of the wood, but they they've got to go to one of those plastic corks. Yeah, which it's, sort of ruins the experience for you. It totally, it totally, yeah. especially if you order it in a restaurant. You know, <laughs> there's right, right. there's something about them coming over and going crack. It just doesn't work. <laughs> right. You know, wine wine is obviously a physical good, but it's a very experiential good. You know, it's one right. that you that it's the drinking of it, it's the sensory experience that you have, and that can have a huge effect when you have something that's just just off. Mm-hmm. And, and I wanted to ask you that leads me into the, the the real part of the question, which is this: is that it's so clear that the experience experience economy is happening and successful, but yet why are so many folks, especially in the B two B world, so afraid of this? Well, you know, certainly, you, Ed, you see it a lot more on the consumer side than on the B2B side. But, but I think there's more and more going on there. I, mean, I think, you know, business people, they think they've got to be, you know, straight-laced. They, they don't want drama in, in, in their interactions and that. You know, but a basic principle that applies both consumers and, and business is that the experience is the marketing. You know, the, that the best way to generate demand for your offering, whether it's a commodity, good service, or even another experience, is with an experience so engaging that people can't help but, but pay attention, you know, spend time with you, and, and then pay up by buying your offering. And I see a lot of that in the B2B world where, where people are creating marketing experiences. You know, Whirlpool, for example, has the world of Whirlpool in Chicago, where they took over the top floor or two of this, of this old building right on the Chicago River. And, and what they did is they got at their trade show budget. They said, rather than go to trade shows where maybe we get 10, 15 minutes with a, with a uh, channel partner or potential uh, uh, customer out there, maybe let's bring them up to our own place where we can control the experience. We can show off our, our appliances. We can capture their time for hours and, and occasionally even days and then let that experience generate the demand that they're going to want to sell our appliances through to their customers. So it's sort of like a reverse trade show. That's interesting. Right, right, where they, where they own the whole thing. You know, and my favorite example is actually case construction equipment. Right? You figure construction equipment. 
Well, you know, a lot of people that, that run construction companies, they grew up using this stuff, but they never get to do it anymore. They're, they're all in the office, you know, having to manage everything. So they created the, the Tomahawk Experience Center in the Northwoods of Wisconsin, where they bring potential customers up for a day or two, let them play with the equipment, right? You know, they have rodeos and contests who can move the most amount of dirt in the shortest amount of time. And they, in fact, did a study and found that a normal customer goes up to a dealer's of theirs, they have perhaps a 20% chance of, of getting the business, but they bring them up to Tomahawk and it goes up to 80%, you know, from 20% to 80% because the experience is the marketing. Interesting. Yeah. And what, what, what Ron and I see too is just some of the, the innovations around other things that are that most people don't consider part of the experience. For example, innovation in, in pricing is one of our, mm-hmm. our big, big mantras. And that the, there was a, an example given, I think we were, we were talking during the break about Rory Sutherland talks about this, where a car company, rather than, than adding $3,000 or taking an additional $3,000 off the car price, was taking the $3,000 and adding it on to the trade-in value. Uh-huh. And it accounted for a, a dramatic increase in one brand of car that wasn't a particularly <laughs> well-selling brand. And it's the same amount of money. It's just the positioning of it, right. it, it during the transaction. And the same thing, of course, is the famous one of, of a website that changed, you know, con- uh, um, register to continue because nobody wanted to register and then buy, but we're happy to buy first and then register. <laughs> right, right. And so much the case. It's how people perceive things. You know, we talked about uh, you know, charging admission really is the key with an experience like American Girl does, is that if you're truly in the experience business, then you need to charge for the time your customers spend with you because that's what they value. You know, whether it's an admission fee, a membership fee, an access fee, a, a per-event fee, in some way you need to figure out how to align what you charge for with what customers value. And so now, for example, we see more and more restaurants that are, in fact, having a, a, a mission fee. You've got to get a ticket in advance, one price for the meal, rather than charge you once you get in there and you may or may not show up for your res- reservation. You know, the first I saw do that was Next in Chicago from uh, Gr- the, the famous chef Grant Anschutz, I think it is. And, and he did it where you have to go online, you have to make a reservation, you have to print out your ticket and bring it there, and then your meal is free. It's subsumed within the ticket price for the experience. Interesting. It's sort of like that you were talking about gym membership, how, how the CrossFit craze has almost uh, changed the transformation of, of really what I find interesting, uh, sending you back into slavery, but you pay for it. Right. You get to do that, uh, uh, what you were talking about earlier, which, which is a trend I call paying labor, you know, about you know, having to work at, at the farm to pick the pumpkins and carry it yourself instead of having it delivered to you. Well, increasingly, there's companies that can pay people to work for them. You know, that's paying labor. Yeah. <laughs> I, I first remember this at a, at a, a shrimp boat experience in, in Hilton Head Island, you know, where you're charging $25 per person, and then at the bottom it says you get to share the catch. And I thought, share the catch? We get some of it. What do they do with the rest of it? They're selling it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're using us to, uh, to, as their labor. Yeah. Well, interesting, and, and I want to. I'm going to bring turn this to a, a baseball conversation. I, I Ron, Ron reads all of the books, and I and I have read the Experience Economy a, a long time ago. But I'm I'm a big uh, video watcher, so I I was catching up for and preparing for this by watching lots of videos. And you mentioned that you're a Yankee fan, yeah. which um, I won't hold that against you. I'm a lifelong Met fan. Sorry. Oh. Uh, <laughs> 
<laughs> but but talking about the experience of, of of baseball and the you know and yes the, those balls guys do still exist because my son has one he's nine and we use it in practice the other oh, night super, so super. there's also now a thing called the swing thing mm-hmm. and I think uh, this is a good segue Joe because this brings us into this idea of the multiverse that is a thing that goes on the the base of the bat. That allows you to then uh, judge the the swing, the bat speed mm-hmm. uh, of e- of each kid, and we can we can now craft and adjust their swings based on this data that gets gets taken from the swing thing and gets downloaded to our devices in real time as we're watching the kid practice. Right, Pretty that's incredible super, stuff. Right. So you're now using technology to augment that real world experience that you're having. Yep, yep. And what I wanted to ask you about is is instant replay in baseball. And uh, as a baseball fan, what are your thoughts on that? And then also what they're introducing this year, the idea of pitch clocks, right? You've got to, got to get right. that pitch in within 20 seconds. Um, and and I'm a National League fan, so you know I'm very much against this because I hate the DH. So, <laughs> <laughs> But do you think that that's an experience economy type thing? Is that the, the, the experience at the baseball game – uh, now being taken away from the umpires and toward this idea of well we've got to we've got to get the call right because right. you know it, it, it because the, the reality we can now see through the what's happening on the screen yes and the fact that you can now tell whether the umpire is right or not thanks to the instant replay and and whether you're watching it on TV whether you're watching it live although they tend not to avoid you know putting that up in the big display if you're in the actual stadium so they don't have riots and things like that when they get it wrong. So there is there is pressure to do that to get it right. In today's world, uh, you can just understand. You get so much data and information on everything that's that's going on. Is that increasingly people say, "Yeah, you know, let's get it right." But it does take away a level of of human element in the game. Uh, and you know, it, depending on what it is, it may slow down or, or, or speed up the game. Um, but there's still, you know, you got to maintain a level of of humanity. Uh, in uh, you know, in every game, uh, you know, to keep the to keep the the history of it and and really the authenticity of it going forward. Yeah, no, because what I see is you know what's what's next is going to be the the virtual strike zone, right? I mean, right. and then then it completely supplants the judgment of the umpire, and 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 instead we're just going to be told, nope, that was over the plate, so it's a strike. <laughs> right, right. Well, eventually, you know, you're going to be sitting there in the live stadium, and you're going to have your goggles on, right? <laughs> and you're going to be able to see the trail of the ball. So you actually see the curvature with the with the speed of it on there, the speed of the bat, et cetera. And as you say, the virtual strike zone and see where where it really was. And hopefully the umpire can see that as well, <laughs> so that he knows whether it's it's a it's a strike or not. And and uh, you know, technology is going to continue to enhance uh, how we how we play things and how we view them as well. You, you, you remind me too of the. You know, like there are things now. Like you, I remember seeing uh, uh, sometime a few months ago. It was like the um, the anniversary or the or the per- no. It was the person who invented instant replay died, is what it was. And so there's in his obituary they talked a lot about how amazing this was in the time of the 1960s and that. And now you couldn't imagine watching baseball without it, or any sport for that matter. But also now think about the yellow line on a football game. You know, where you get to see where that first down marker is because the technology that overlays it on, on the screen. You know, I go to a live football game and sort of like I'm, I'm, I miss it. Where's that yellow line? I want to know exactly <laughs> where, where the, you know, whether they made the first down or not. Yeah, and and I love how they still say on the broadcast usually that you know that that line is not official, right? Right, but it's way more accurate. Yes, yes. 
Yes, they do such a good job of it. Yep, yep. It's, it's pretty, pretty neat the way they do that. All right. Well, we're up against our, our second break, so we want to uh, thank you and, re- and remind everyone that you can email us at tsoe at verisage Also, if you're interested in Ron and myself's book, you can go to uh, verisage slash dialogues, and, and that will take you to the Amazon link for that. But uh, now we we're going to take our second break with our sponsor, Azamba. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. What if you could close more business with less effort and do it faster? What could your people accomplish if they had their own personal assistant keeping track of meetings and reminding them of follow-ups? What would it mean to have a perfect view of what your team and your prospects and your customers are doing? What if you could run your business from anywhere? You can have it all. Visit www.azamba.com forward slash soul today to find out how. That's azamba, A-Z-A-M-B-A dot com forward slash soul. Have you ever read a book that changed your life? I sure have. But have you ever read a book where the forward changed your life? Me neither. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. I wrote the forward to Ron Baker and Ed Kless's new ebook, The Soul of Enterprise, Dialogues on Business and the Knowledge Economy. The value of this book is found entirely in its forward. So when you buy it, think of it as buying the forward and getting the rest of the book for free. Available now for download exclusively on Amazon.com. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Kless. To find out more about our show, visit Verisage.com. You may also tweet us at Verisage. That's V-E-R-A-S-A-G-E. Now, back to the soul of enterprise. Well, welcome back, everybody. We're here with Joseph Pine, the author, or one of the authors of The Experience Economy. And folks, this is, is, has been updated. Uh, so there is an updated edition, and that's the one that uh, we will link to on our show notes as well. Uh, Joe, I wanted to ask you, you know, I, I love the progression of economic value, how you lay it out, the commodities, goods, services, experience, and, and then transformation. But I, I guess I want your opinion on this. You know, supposedly we're leaving a, a service economy and, and, you know, we're morphing into this experience economy. But I still think service standards suck. In a lot of businesses, so how, how is 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 this one of the the levels we'll just kind of skip and we'll just jump right to an experience economy? But how do you account for that? I mean, do you believe service standards have slipped? I would probably say, on average, yes. I mean, there are so many companies that are doing well at it, but um, but yeah, the, you know, I think it's because simply because of of uh, you know money is uh, with services. You're basically paying for the activities that the company performs, and they recognize that the fewer activities they perform, then the higher their margins are going to be. And so, right. let's figure out how we can spend as little money. Let's automate as much as possible. Let's let's 
uh, not talk to our customers. You know, think about whenever I talk with uh, with bank the banking industry. You know, I, I say that no industry is more commoditized itself than banking because they came to view spending time with customers as costing them money. Right. So, the, so yes, so they want to push them out where, with any human interaction and get them to use uh, self-service venue, you know, routes that uh, that really have, in fact, lower service. Right. The other thing you and Ed kind of touched on this too, but I think this whole distinction that we make between you know B two B and B two C, I, I you know I understand it and I understand there's some valid differences, but I, I just think you know this is all about P to P. It's people to people. At the end of the day, right, people buy right. things, even if they're in a large organization. And and you're right. Why consumers aren't the only one that would appreciate? I mean, your case example, I think, is a is a brilliant example, and I'm sure there's lots of others. Um, the other thing I wanted to ask you is we're starting to see this idea of a customer experience officer. I believe BMW has one. I, I think Sage has one. We do. We, yeah, you talked about it uh, on, on our show uh, a couple weeks ago. What's been your experience with that particular function, Joe? And, and is it, is, does it work? Well, they, you know, there, there are a huge explosion of number of people with titles like that. The, you know, we always tend to refer chief experience officer, and you know, and to differentiate from the CEO, we say abbreviate CXO, right? Chief right. experience officer, and it's somebody who really is in, you know, has that the the experienced uh, uh, tattooed on their forehead. Says we're responsible for the experience that our customers have with our company, and it can be a very important position to really turn the ship around and get it focused. You know, first of all, on the customer. Second of all, on the experience that that customer has with with the company, you know, particularly on the those those economic offerings, the, the what are the, the the experience offerings that we're going to offer, I do I, I do sort of view that hopefully it becomes like quality, you know, which used to have people dedicated to it, but then became imbued through the entire business. And I sort of right. hope that's what happens with experience that everybody recognizes that. Experience is our business. Therefore, we, you know, the CEO is the chief experience officer because it's all about the the experience. And in many businesses, I think that will that will one day happen. Right. And then when you start talking about transformations, um, do you see professional firms really grasping this and and jumping on this concept? Because I, I still think they're 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 laggards when it comes to just good customer service. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, maybe they, maybe they need to leapfrog that and backfill. Uh, but yes, I, I think that professional service firms in particular really ought to view themselves as being in the transformation business because no company buys their offerings because they want their offerings. You know, it's always a means to an end. And if you sell the end rather than the means, then you'll gain much more economic value. And I think with professional service firms, where it gets to is, is what do you charge for you know, I know uh, on the, the Verisage Institute website, you talk about the Declaration of Independence on, on the billable hour. You know, and the billable hour is as much a service business as you can get, right? I, as a customer, am paying for what you do, the activities you do. Whether those activities benefit me at all is, you know, is, is, is a matter of question. And instead, right. what you need to do is then, with a transformation, align what you charge for with what I value, which is a changed me, is the actual outcome that I achieve. And that's what I think professional service firms need to do is charge for the demonstrated outcome that their that their customers achieve, 
And I see that more and more with uh, consulting companies that are doing that. That, that. Instead of charging for the billable hour, let's find out what measure makes sense to charge for, and then you pay based off the actual difference that we make in your firm. Actual results, and they actually yeah. put some skin in the game. You know, it's, it's very interesting. Your definition of a transformation, that demonstrated outcome that the customer achieves and taking responsibility for it, that's actually one of the definitions or, or at least one of the characteristics of what it means to be a professional. Yeah. A professional takes responsibility for producing an outcome, not delivering a series of tasks. Exactly. So why do you charge for the task? Exactly. You charge for the outcome. Yeah, I found it interesting that in one of your books you mentioned that the health, you know, maybe healthcare companies can move away from you know service per fee and and go to you know keeping people healthy. And I right. think yeah, that that sounds great until we can get the government out of it. <laughs> yeah, you and me both, brother. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, go ahead and jump in here. <laughs> well, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna jump back, but if we could uh, talk a little bit about the 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 multiverse here, uh, some of your late, later work. But first, explain that. I, I kind of jumped right into a couple of questions <laughs> about it, really uh, out of out of context, mostly because I wanted to hear what your thoughts on baseball were. So. <laughs> right. Right. Well, but if you could just set set the, set the multiverse right. up for us, and, that'd be and, great. By the way, Ed, I'm, I'm so much more pleased that you're a Mets fan than a Red Sox fan. So we're oh yeah, okay. of course. <laughs> <laughs> So, so the multiverse is the framework at the core of my book, Infinite Possibility, uh, which I wrote with a, a, a colleague and friend, Kim Korn. And you know, we recognized since the experience economy came out that, that we just had this explosion of digital technology that's just infusing everything that we're doing. I tried to sort of make sense of it. And I finally figured out that the, that the way to do it is with this framework. I like to call it to say it's a very humble framework because it merely attempts to redefine the known universe, <laughs> you know, which, which physicists tell us is make up of three fundamental dimensions, time, space, and matter. All of our experience that we have is in, is in this universe of time, space, and matter. But that's not all that exists. And, in fact, we can take each one of those dimensions and recognize, well, there's the, the opposite side of it. The, you know, think about matter. Matter is about atoms, but no matter, as I'll call it, is about bits. You know, it's not about things that have no materiality. And we can use those bits to augment our real-world experience. You know, that classically is what augmented reality is. is we, we have a real-world experience, but we're, we're overlaying it with a series of bits that give us information and let us have experiences that we couldn't otherwise have. So, you know, if we have matter and no matter, we can have space and no space. Space is about the, the real places that we inhabit. You know, each of us are physically someplace right now. But no space is about virtual places. And the conversation that we're having over this, this phone line that's then being transmitted over the Internet uh, is, in fact, a, a virtual place. And you think about uh, games that we have and virtual worlds that we can enter and, and, and uh, all of that level of virtuality that exists through the Web and the Internet, through our smartphones and that, that now can be used to create experiences that we couldn't have in reality. And, fi- and finally, there's you know, matter, no matter, space, no space. There's, there's time and no time. And time is about the actual events that unspool before us moment by moment by moment. It's why you need to take certain commercial breaks at certain specific times, right? because there's really a tyranny of time in that way. Uh, but no time is about how do we get out of that? How do we experience the past like we can at uh, Colonial Williamsburg? How do we envision the future? As, as many consultants should help us do? How do we hyperlink time like we can on Facebook and LinkedIn and, and instant messaging where we can have you know, asynchronous conversations? The people who are listening to this at a time later than now 
are are really experiencing this in no time, right? They're they're not getting this live; they're getting the recording of it. But it's on a time that is their time that they that they value and so forth. So now we can create experiences that that um, are not just confined to the real world of time, space, and matter, but in fact can use all six of these dimensions, these experience design variables, to create new and wondrous experiences. Yeah, and the the big challenge for that though is is some of the language. You know, one in one of the presentations that I viewed, you were setting up this whole uh, time space matter uh, uh, metaphor, um, and and then you you use this then metaphor to describe it. You said, well, about reality, but I'm not going to spend time on that, right? Yeah, there's so much you can do. Right, but which is which is absolutely the right phrase. But when you really think about it, we can't spend time anyway. Right, right. right. it just no, goes. Right, it just, it just goes. Right, and that's right. And, and 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 you do I think make the, this point is and I I'm a, a project manager by trade as well. And one of the big challenges that I see with project management in professional firms is oftentimes they confuse the idea of time as effort and time as duration. Right. Right. And they, they even have customers asking them, you know, so how long is that going to take you? And they interpret that as, well, how many hours is it going to take? Because that's how you price. Right. Right. Reality is, is what the customer is saying is, no, I want it now. I want it fast. Right. <laughs> right. Because what they really mean is I want it soon uh, in ter- terms of length. So it's, it's, it's just amazing that the, the, these language uh, pieces are so important um, uh, around around that. And, and of course, the, this idea of of, uh, uh, of of making sure that time is, in fact, viewed as a constraint, almost not necessarily as a resource. So. Right, and that, and that you, I think you can turn that around though. You, is you can view time as a, as a resource, even real time, because there's so much value in the real time aspect of it. You know, we, you know, we talked earlier, you mentioned your, your, your Twitter handles and, and that sort of thing. And, and what Twitter does is allows you to dip into the real world, uh, virtually and see what's happening right now. Right? That's the value of Twitter. So everything that's going on right now. Uh, and 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 TweetDeck, you know, is a dashboard, uh, and a dashboard is a way of providing a virtual representation, right? So it's in virtuality, but it's a dashboard of what's going on in real time, and there's value to that real time aspect as well as to you know gain eliminating the the tyranny of time, and and finding ways to uh, to gain value outside of it. Sure, and again, that's but that that's time as as duration, not effort, which right. is exactly what I was talking about. Exactly. Sure. Yep. Sure. Yep. So, uh, what, the one other thing that that struck me as I was watching this, and I don't you know if we we're coming up against a, a break, so I'm going to set the question up, and There's then perhaps we time. can come. Yeah, I know, <laughs> I know, it's coming, it's coming back, it's taking taking us out as always. But uh, is th- this idea of if there are is there virtual? Uh, we have Bitcoin as virtual currency. But are there other currencies that could exist in some of these other experiences, which <laughs> I think would be a really interesting thing to play with. But um, we are up against a break, so uh, we will take that. As uh, You can get a hold of us at hashtag AskTSOE if you want to ask a, us a question. Um, also, we got a couple of, of tweets during, so we thank you for participating with us today. But also, if you want to... Uh, See our show notes, which we will put up after the show with Joe Pine today. It's verisage.com slash TSOE. But now, our final word from Sage. 
Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Four new employees. A 20% increase in revenue. Being one of the 9 million women business owners in the U.S. These are your proudest numbers, your landmarks of growth and success. Sage helps you achieve business milestones with cloud and software solutions that lead to deeper financial insights. Believe in your numbers. See what Sage can do for your business. Visit believeinyournumbers.com today. Have you ever read a book that changed your life? I sure have. But have you ever read a book where the forward changed your life? Me neither. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. I wrote the forward to Ron Baker and Ed Kless's new ebook, The Solemn Enterprise, Dialogues on Business and the Knowledge Economy. The value of this book is found entirely in its forward. So when you buy it, think of it as buying the forward and getting the rest of the book for free. Available now for download exclusively on Amazon.com. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Kless. To find out more about our show, visit Verisage.com. You may also tweet us at Verisage. That's V-E-R-A-S-A-G-E. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. Welcome back, everybody. We're here with Joseph Pine, and uh, we're going to skip the Bitcoin question. <laughs> Talk about virtual because <laughs> I'm so confused. I've confused myself, Ron. <laughs> but maybe maybe we'll talk to Joe about that next time we have him on. But Joe, I just wanted to ask you one more question. Back to the Experience Economy book. I know we're kind of jumping around here on you, but uh, you say you ask the question, "What's next after transformations?" And you say there is no sixth level because perfecting people falls not in the domain of human business, but under the province of God. Do you see anything yet beyond transformations? <laughs> you know, I get that question a lot. And the, the basic issue, you know, we have a construct that as an offering gets commoditized, then heuristic is that if you customize it, what, what's next? And as you say, the, you know, if you customize transformations beyond what you can do, the only thing seems to be that you could perfect people. And that really is not part of, of what we do today. You, know, you get asked, a lot of people think, well, maybe it's a cycle. Maybe it's a circle that goes back around and we go back to subsistence living and, and that sort of thing. And, and I don't see that happening, barring you know, any worldwide cataclysm and that. So it does seem that there are five and five only levels of economic value. And, and a lot of it is based off of what you charge for. You know, if you can come right. up with a sixth way of what you could charge for, then okay, I can say there's a sixth value. But basically, companies with companies, you are what you charge for. You know, if you charge for undifferentiated stuff, you're in the commodities business. If you charge for tangible things, you're in the goods business. If you charge for the activities your people perform, you're in the services business. If you charge for the time your customers spend with you, you're in the experience business. And then finally, if you charge for the again the demonstrated outcome that your customer achieved, that's what puts you economically in the transformation business. Right, right. Well, given that we haven't even kind of perfected service yet, maybe right. <laughs> maybe it's premature to talk about the that. sixth level. Right. And the, and the, and the church tried to sell that indulgences, and the, it didn't right. well, it didn't work out right. so well. That's not a good thing, no. <laughs> and and another book that you wrote that I really found interesting. You wrote this, I guess, with Kim Corn, right. the laws of managing, and you start that book by saying management is broken. 
Uh, but then why is command and control still widely practiced? Why do you think it is? I mean, we, we've been talking about this. I know Gary Hamill has written The Future of Management and other books on this topic and Mintzberg, all these great thinkers. Why do companies still operate in this industrial era command and control, you know, Frederick Taylorism efficiency outlook? Right, even if they call it by different names, that still is going on so much. And and I, I think a large part of it is mindset. It's just in the fabric of what we think managing is. You think, oh, I got to be a manager. I got to tell people what to do, right? And, and that's just wrong. Uh, it doesn't have to be that way. We really need to to figure out what should replace it. What should go beyond uh, command and control and all those old ways of doing things, and with all their countermeasures and you know and, and how we try to to make it uh, seem to work uh, today. And, and my co-author there, Kim Corn, has really been searching for the past decade on what this answer is, and and we think we do finally have it figured out by you know, going back to first principles. You know, what is managing all about? What is an enterprise, a company? What is, what is business uh, all about? And and we figured out that you know there's basic some basic things that are there that uh, that if you pay attention to these, if you follow these laws, and, and you know, even we'll call them laws of managing. If you follow these laws and imperatives then you will create a company that can, in fact, thrive forever. And that's what the, the, the core nature of business is. You should be able to thrive forever. You, you, you know, one thing, and, and then, Ed, sorry, I just have to ask him this as well. Um, you, that's one of the things you say in the book is why do companies still fail so often? And I guess if, you know, I, I come from more of an economics background, and economists don't really pay attention to companies failing. They're, they're so what? As long as we have new ones rising up, entrepreneurialism, dynamism, do we really want companies to last forever? <laughs> Well, the, the, the key is why should you have to have a company fail and all of the economic dislocations that comes from that uh, before things get started up you know, someplace else? Because you will always have certain people that, yes, there's jobs being created over there, but they're not, uh, you know, they don't have the education, they don't have the background, the experience for those jobs. So what happens there? And, and, and the, the key is, is to bring that same level of dynamism that you talk about. Bring, bring the creative destruction that goes on outside the company in the greater economy. We need to bring that inside the company so that we're actually uh, uh, creatively uh, destroying ourselves. We're, we're, we have that same level of creative destruction so that we're constantly doing new things that create greater and greater economic value for our customers. I, but very, I, very few organizations are are willing to do that because you know Apple, of course, is an exception. They they come out with a new product every eighteen months that obsoletes their latest and greatest, which is fantastic, right? But I think what it is is it it's this uh, what we call at the Veris Institute the effing debate, which is efficiency versus effectiveness. We have these lean six sigma guru ninja turtles running around saying, well, it's actually about the customer, but in reality. It's all focused on efficiency gains, right? Right, and and protect protecting the curse. And I, my, my personal belief is that when an organization begins to focus more on efficiency rather than being effective for customers, is the day that it begins to die. Right, right. Now, in fact, you know, we we talk about the need for both of those. In fact, the uh, the fourth law we talk about is is the law of learning, where you need learning around two areas, and one is exploitation, right? That's how do we get better at what we already do. That includes the efficiency, and you've got to do that. But you can't let it starve exploration. You can't let it get in the way of coming up with new things of doing it, being more effective, again, creating more value uh, for customers. And, and the key there is that companies have to figure out how to orchestrate these two things together so that they can, they can have both exploitation and exploration 
make a difference in the operation of the business. We had a, a professor of economics on uh, from business from London Business School. And um, Ron, help me with the name. Um, it's it's not oh Jules Goddard, and he he said something I think really profound. I want to share it with you to get your reaction to it. Uh, and, and that is is that um, strategy is is being able to stay one step ahead of having to be efficient. <laughs> right, I love that. Yes, I love that. So you're you're and that's where you're constantly innovating. You've got the creativity there to to explore and come up with new things that you're doing so that, you know, so much so that you don't have to spend a lot of time on being, getting more and more efficient, getting more and more automated, getting rid of more and more people on the old ways of doing things. Right. And and the other thing, and I'm not sure if we, we interviewed a guest earlier uh, this month um, who, who wrote a book called Why Work Sucks and How to Fix It, Jody Thompson, the initiator of the Row Movement. Mm-hmm. And one of the ways to see, and she's got a great simple way of saying this, she says, we, what, what managers got to remember is we manage the work, not the people. Yep. And and that that I think really has has had a profound impact on on me and my thinking because what what I find in inside a lot of times in corporate America is they're focused so focused on managing the people, right? And then people can manage themselves, <laughs> right? <laughs> exactly. If, particularly if and this is one another one of our laws we call it the law of meaning. Particularly if you have a a shared meaningful purpose, and you let that meaningful purpose, which everybody in the company basically has to ascend to. This is yes. This is what we're about. This is what we believe in. Then that can align everything that they do. Then you don't have to micromanage what they're doing because they know that they're off in the direction of this purpose and they're going to help fulfill this purpose uh, no matter what. And, yeah. and that's what happens in charities, right, Joe? I mean, yep. look at how hard people work in charities, and they're not being micromanaged. Right. Exactly. And and it's because they believe in it uh, themselves. You know, when when they're when their personal purpose and what, why they exist in this world aligns with the company's purpose, then you truly are going to have great things happen. Yeah, uh, John Mackey, CEO of Whole yep. Foods, has a great a great uh, analogy for this. He, he talks about purpose uh, or a profit in a company being like red blood cells. Um, it you have to produce red blood cell in your body in order to live, but it's not your purpose. You don't wake right. up in the morning thinking red blood cell production. Right. <laughs> right? Yep. Profits, profits are the consequence of doing great things, not the, right. the, the means by which you do them and not the goal of the company. Right. No, absolutely. And I think that, that that's ultimately, uh, to try to tie this into a nice, neat package at the end here, why Ron and I are, are doing this radio show, The Soul of Enterprise, is because we, we really do believe that that enterprise, not and and by enterprise we don't mean big companies. We mean en- enterprising work um, has has a soul to it, has a spiritual dimension to it, has, has this purpose in in its underlying mission. Right, that, and I I think that you got it exactly right. You know, it's a great way to think about it. What is the soul of the company? And that soul of the company should be instantiated, right? Should be stated in its purpose. <laughs> Which unfortunately then gets sent over to the marketing team, and it's downhill from there. <laughs> yeah, well, you don't you don't don't necessarily want to tell people what your purpose is. You don't necessarily market it. You want to be it. Right. Right. Well, thank you so much, uh, Joe, for being on the show. Ron and I have had a blast. Ron, uh, any parting thoughts? Yeah. No. Thank you, Joe. And are you working on a new book by chance? Uh, <laughs> I'm actually what I'm working on is a um, a sequel to Mass Customization. Yeah, you know, oh, that, that okay. finally went out of print twenty year, two years ago after twenty years, and so I know so much more about it now. I think it's time to to get that latest knowledge into print. 
Oh, excellent. Well, thank or, you so much. Well, <laughs> thank you so much for coming on, Joe. We're big fans. And again, we'll post all your uh, books up and links and where people can find you. And where can people find you, by the way, if they want to contact you? Uh, the easiest place is at strategichorizons.com. Right? Excellent. That's the website of our company, strategichorizonswithans.com. Beautiful. Great. Thank you so much, Joe. Appreciate it very right. much. Thank you both. Ron, what do we got next week? Ed, we have Robert Cross, who the Wall Street Journal called the guru of revenue management. He is an absolute legend in pricing circles. He was the person who brought revenue management or yield management to Delta Airlines uh, back in the days after the airlines were uh, deregulated. So really looking forward, folks, to having uh, Robert Cross on next week. We'll see you in 167 hours. Excellent. This has been the Soul of Enterprise, Business, and the Knowledge Economy, sponsored by Sage, supporting small and medium-sized businesses by creating greater freedom for them to succeed. Join us next week at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific, where we'll have Bob Cross on. And in the meantime, folks, feel free to follow us at verisage.com slash TSOE for more information about the show and our show notes. And we will link to all of uh, Joe's books up there. And uh, in the meantime, we hope you have a great week, and thank you for joining us. Thank you.